Welcome to Myself with Others. I'm your host, Adam Schatz, and my guest today is William Parker. Born in 1952 in the Bronx, William Parker is a bassist, composer, band leader, poet, and oral historian. His work is infused with lyricism, soul, and a passion for social justice and liberation. The meaning of free and his approach to free jazz isn't just about freedom from chord changes and standards. Parker has been a major force in bands led by some of the greatest musicians of the post-war period. Cecil Taylor, Jimmy Lyons, Frank Lowe, Bill Dixon, David S. Ware, Billy Bang, Peter Bratzman, Roscoe Mitchell, and Matthew Shipp. He is also a remarkable composer and leader who has created music in an extraordinary array of settings, duets, trios, quartets, song cycles, orchestral work, and solo bass. His most recent project is a 10-disc box set entitled The Music of William Parker, Migration of Silence Into and Out of the Tone World. Cisco Bradley, in her perceptive new biography of Parker, describes his work as a record of the living memory of Black revolutionary music and the broader form of music that he defines as universal tonality. William is also a co-founder of the Vision Festival along with his wife, the dancer and choreographer Patricia Nicholson. He's also been a mentor to countless young musicians, a pillar of the downtown jazz scene. In the words of the drummer Andrew Cyril, William Parker is the mayor of the Lower East Side. This episode of Myself with Others has been sponsored by Chamber Music America. For over two decades, with the generosity of the Andrew Mellon Foundation and the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, Chamber Music America has commissioned over 500 original works by American composers, including Andrew Cyril, David Murray, Sylvie Courvoisier, George Lewis, Tanya Leon, Steve Reich, Julia Wolfe, David Sanchez, Vijay Iyer, and others. Chamber Music America's commissioning programs provide artistic support for performance, touring, recording, and archiving new works. Visit www.chamber-music.org for more information. Thank you for joining us on this episode, William. Thank you. Glad to be here. I wanted to ask you a question about the striking cover art for Migration of Silence into and out of the Tone World. It's a series of paintings by an artist named Joe Wood Brown. These are paintings depicting workers in Oaxaca, Mexico, reminiscent in a way of Diego Rivera's murals. How did you come to choose these, William? Well, I've known Joe Wood Brown since the 70s, no, no, the early 80s. She was a friend of ours. And uh, she happens to be married to saxophone player Rob Brown. So I knew her work throughout the years. And she was working on this series about migrant workers, you know, people picking fruit, picking things from the ground and putting them in baskets. I think at the time we had the immigration problem from Mexico. And that was going to be one of the main themes of the release the idea of people in transit with no place to go, was trying to find a refuge, 
jobs, places to live. And I was really taken by the bending of the person's head and then the hat. There's also a larger version of that, of that particular painting. I thought it would be very fitting to use that artwork as part of the box set. There's also always been a really strong kind of class politics dimension, not just to the themes of the music that, that you've made, but also to your vision of what being a musician is. That musicians, in a sense, they're cultural workers. You know, we have a song that we uh, wrote called Never Forget the People. Hasn't been recorded yet, but we sang that a lot during the protests when Donald Trump was elected. And uh, that statement there, you know, never forget the people is really strong in my vision of things is that the music we do is art for the people. And we can't keep art from the people. The salvation of the artist is the people. People should be able to go to art museums. A family should be able on a Friday night, visit artist studios and buy paintings for their kids, for the kids' children's rooms. There's a disconnect between art and people, and I think it should, be, it should be bridged. I mean, it's nice to play in Europe, it's nice to play at Carnegie Hall, but it's also nice for me to be able to, and we're thinking about that now, really getting back to playing in neighborhoods and trying to figure out how we can get people to listen to this music. You know, there's a, there's a film coming out uh, soon. It's a, this really extraordinary uh, documentary by Questlove about the Harlem Cultural Festival of 1969. I think it's going to be released in a couple of months, and I saw a screener of it. You know, as you know, um, at the Harlem Cultural Festival, almost every movement at the time in Black creative music was represented. You know, everything from like Abby Lincoln and, and Max Roach to Nina Simone to... Mavis Staples, and that music was direct, made directly available to people, right? That was a kind of uh, a glory day for music's accessibility. I mean, great music's accessibility to significant audiences. Well, you know, as wonderful as that is, we have to remember for all those included, was Sun Ra there, was Cecil Taylor there, was Ornette Coleman invited. There's a certain corner of the neighborhood where certain musicians live that somehow the invite gets lost in the mail. <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting when you describe your commitment to the people, I find myself thinking about the popular inflection of your sound. There's this perception that I find terribly frustrating. I've always found it frustrating about so-called avant-garde jazz or free jazz, that it is a music of the elite, or it's a music of the academy, or it's a music that is cerebral and, and difficult and hermetic. And granted, some of the music is, but that's not the impulse of the kind of music that you've been playing for the last four decades, four or five decades. And the thing that's always struck me about your sound is it's, it has a real groove to it. I mean, I hear the great jazz bassists in it. I hear Richard Davis. I hear Wilbur Ware, who I think was a mentor to you. I hear Jimmy Garrison. But I also hear the sound and sensibility of 60s soul and R&B. I mean, perhaps also, or perhaps especially someone like Curtis Mayfield, who is a figure who's been very important to you. Well, I think that the idea to people listen to music, they dance. But then after the dance, they're also inspired. 
they're enlightened. They feel good, they dance, they're inspired, but also they're taking something else back with them. So I think underneath the music, there's always this heartbeat, there's always this funk, there's always this connection to the roots, to the blues, to something that's deep inside people that's waiting to be opened up. And it's, it's natural. I think, and when I mean by natural, I mean it's connected to nature. I mean, all people, when it's a sunny day, they can feel the sun. If it's a rainy day, they can feel the rain. When it's windy, they can feel the wind. So the idea is to create music where you feel these elements when you listen to it. And through those elements, you can get to behind the curtain of what makes the universe tick and exist and how I as an individual fit into this clock, this turning of the world. You discover things about yourself. I mean, I was just writing an article this morning, finishing up this article about Milford Graves. His idea was that everything you needed was inside of you and you just had to tap it. And he connected drumming rhythms to the heartbeat too, didn't he? Yeah, he did that, which was also part of it. But that every human being, if they look inside of themselves, they'll find a, many, many things they didn't even know were there. You're always looking at, I want to be like Beyonce. But if you look inside yourself, you, you, you might find something that you want to be like yourself. I can do a better version of myself than I can of imitating a pop star. Yeah, it's all about connecting people with themselves. And part of that is to teach them that you have to have patience with life. You plant a seed and you let you, it doesn't come up immediately. You water it, you get sunlight, and then next thing you know, you see a little bud coming up and it grows. I mean, that, that's how we are as human beings. You can't um, immediately, okay, well, uh, I didn't get enlightened last night. What happened? It takes a little time sometimes. So would you say that when it comes to music and when it comes to creating our own personal sound, we are, to quote the title of one of, of that great collective trio you have, Farmers by Nature? That's part of it. The, uh, that's part of it is planting things and watching them grow and not messing with them too much. It's not sort of sculpting the garden, but let the garden come up the way it should be and see why it comes up that way. There are a lot of natural metaphors and pastoral images and your song titles, references to the seasons and so on. But I, I have to say, I also think of your sound as being very much a New York sound. Well, it is. I speak about nature a lot, but I grew up in the city. But in this concrete jungle, I know that it's here and we're living in it. But outside the wall is where it's really at. You know, it takes a while to, to get used to nature. It takes a while. I mean, I'm a city person, and I'm just now beginning to go to Vermont and go to places like that to, or to, to, to relax and meditate with mountains and trees. Although the first songs I've written were about blue trees and mountains and things like that. I mean, they all came to me in dreams, and I had never seen a mountain or, or a blue tree. But I knew it existed, and I knew. But I also saw kids picking up soda bottles in, in fields of, of broken glass and, and rusty nails, and that that was just as real as a mountain. 
when you uh, travel out to uh, nature, as it were, outside of the city, do you find yourself feeling at ease or do you feel the kind of anxiety that some New Yorkers have about, you know, not being in their comfort zone? No, once I settle down, I'm, I'm down, you know, I'm, I'm with it. I don't like bear. I mean, I, I, I'm saying I don't like bears. I've never met a bear. So if, if you're a bear out there, I'm I, nothing personal. But uh, no, I, I, I settle down and I, I'm with it because it's, it's beautiful. I think that growing up with that kind of environment should soften your heart and should sort of soften your soul and to be empathetic so that we can grow as uh, productive human beings and not productive in the sense of making money, but productive in learning how we should treat each other and enhance our capacity for compassion and love for nature and human beings. I think that's the kind of the goal. The bass is a large instrument, and sometimes it's the largest instrument on stage. And yet the bass can often get lost. I remember, you know, a number of years ago, this novelist, Patrick Suskind, who wrote a brilliant book called Perfume, wrote a play about the double basis. And he was writing about the double basis in an orchestra, but it was it was told from the vantage point. It was a monologue, vantage point of a double bassist who felt like he was completely obscured and being in that orchestra and that no one really paid attention to what he was doing. And now that's obviously not the case with jazz basis, but at the same time, some listeners don't understand just how central the bass is to the music sound. Uh, it's the anchor in a way, isn't it? I look at music as layers. A tree grows from the bottom up. I've never seen a tree grow from the top down. So the bottom is the low sounds, the, the sounds that all the other sounds build on and off of. In painting, if a canvas is just silence and dark sounds, brown colors, dark colors, the earth. And that again, that's the bottom. You paint a dark sky, you know, then you have a storm, which is, a, which is another idea. So I think that the, the bass is, particularly in totally improvised music, is really the composer. Mm. You know, and if you listen to, that's why it's really important to hear it because I know that every time I play, and I play with a lot of groups, a lot of bands, that I'm moving the music to the left, to the right, I'm playing a rhythm, I'm playing a line, I'm negotiating r repetitious harmonic structure, I'm doing melodies, I'm doing all of these things to get the music to uplift, to lift up. And if you don't hear it, you hear that as just a one lump of sound, then you, you might be missing something. And so when you get off the bandstand and someone says, well, yeah, uh, I, I didn't get the music. But if you hear what I'm playing, if I just said, well, you hear that, hear that line, you know, that, that funk line, you didn't hear that when I was playing? Yes, I was, I was playing that like for three quarters of the set and you didn't hear it because whatever reason, you know, the bass isn't mic'd, but it's, it's always something there that you can relate to that you have to, because you're playing for people. You're playing for people. And, and so if you're trying to communicate in Japan, it's good to speak Japanese because it's a language that they speak. So you have to speak the language that people speak. But they say music is a universal language. 
so that you don't need to know the particular language, but you can feel it. And you can feel it. And when you feel it, you hear it. And once you hear it, it goes right inside. One of your most perceptive listeners, a trumpeter you played with for many years, Roy Campbell, said that when he first heard you play, I'm quoting, I had my eyes closed and all of a sudden I thought there was a string quartet playing. I heard it all, rhythm, harmony, and counterpoint coming from his bass. That's a full sound. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the idea is that I'm the string section in the orchestra. Okay, I'm the string section slash percussion section. So I'm strings and percussion all in one. And we have four strings to work with, but when those strings get vibrating, uh, you're giving birth to all kinds of things, to little broken rhythm, to circular rhythm, to, to pieces of a melody, to fragments, to things you can count, to rhythms you can't count. All of these things are happening at the same time. And all the bass players I know, they, they do it excellently. That was a good thing about listening to the music we were coming up, is that whether you were listening to Motown or whether you were listening to Blue Note or Impulse or Verve Records, the bass player was always bringing it right to the music. I believe that Wilbur Ware was someone you got to know when you were pretty young. Yeah, he was. I studied with Wilbur Ware. Yeah. And a uh, very interesting human being, very interesting guy. Well, he was an anomaly. I mean, because you couldn't really figure out where he was coming from, and he would never give you any answers to any questions. And then he would always say, the student should never sound like their teacher. But don't you kind of start off imitating on some level before creating your own sound? Well, that's where you may start off, but his thing is that ultimately you want to find your own sound. And that's how we, you know, we worked with him playing something, I, I play something, he plays something, I play something, back and forth. And then when I began to play it my own way, he was very happy with that. And then I'd ask him, well, oh, you know, well, actually, I'd never ask him, how do you do something? But I would ask him questions about music, and he would always say, well, what's music? And that was the answer. When I asked him, I said, well, uh, when you play with Monk, what did he tell you to play? He said he told me to play anything I wanted to play. But when Wilbur got jumping and what he was doing, it, it was like he was coming from some other world, what, what he did. And it, it was, it was non-academic in the sense that there was a pedagogy to it because it was based off drum language. So if you look at the bass and then as a drum, which I did, but I didn't really catch that what, what Wilbur was doing, 
until I start analyzing what he's doing, but it was all based off of the off of the drum. And then the thing about analyzing, you don't want to really even get too close to analyzing things. It's like if you if you're hungry, you don't want to dissect the food or be you you know, you want to get there and eat it. You no, know, you know, apparently, you know, Sonny Rollins after Gunter Schuler published his lengthy analysis of one of his improvisations, had a hard time playing. It froze him up. Yeah, well, that's how it works. It's not about even repeating what you did. Uh, it's, it's like it's, it's every day is a new day. Like, like Frank Wright used to say, it's like you don't want to eat leftover food. You want to repair it fresh every day. And that's how uh, the great improvisers looked at it. And I was teaching, I was up at Columbia. Well, I taught a class, actually it was George Lewis's class the other day. Uh, so I, I brought in a poem by Joseph Jarman, who's a guy I met in the early 70s. And uh, it was about seeking new sounds. And he says, uh, I don't seek new sounds, they seek me. And that was sort of a, a jump off point for a little discussion. But the idea is that Coleman Hawkins, Louis Armstrong, did they seek new sounds? Did they play something different every time? Well, you say, well, they play the same song, but every time they play it is different. And that's the key is that you don't have to, if you happen to say, well, this is a new sound in my vocabulary, but you can play the same sound because every time you play it, it takes on a new life. And there's all these new lives all the time. It never embodies the same life. Is this life of sounds that are constantly being transformed and reinterpreted what you mean by the tone world? Or do you mean something else by that? Well, what I mean by the tone world is I mean is stepping out of yourself from a con where you're not conscious of what you play, you're not thinking about it, you're really stepping into the world of sounds or whatever you're doing. If you're writing a poem and you begin to write and you don't even know what you've written, it just writes itself or it just paints itself. And when you get in playing music, you close your eyes, you go somewhere. So that's the idea of the tone world is that you're stepping above yourself and out of yourself into a world that's perfect. You're also kind of allowing yourself to become a vessel of the music. Oh, always. I mean, that, 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 well, that was the first lesson of the lessons, you know, is that, is that the music doesn't come from us, it comes through us. And so someone says, well, I, it, what do you mean it doesn't come from you? I just heard that music come out of you. <laughs> he said, I know, but I didn't know, I didn't know anything I was doing. I, I could ask me to do it again. I couldn't do it. You know, when you mentioned this symphonic approach to bass playing, I thought of two people. Well, the first person I thought of was, was Jimmy Blanton. But then I thought, hmm, we need to talk about Charles Mingus because Charles Mingus was a bassist. He was a brilliant composer, probably the greatest composer in jazz after Ellington. He was a band leader, and he was also someone who was who was really outspoken politically, just as you are, and who created works like Fables of Faubus and Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. I mean, he was a, a titanic and volcanic personality. Um, I imagine Mingus must have been important to you when you were starting to play bass. Well, you know, I heard Henry Grimes... If Mingus wasn't on Conquistador or the music I was listening to, I didn't hear. 
You see, I heard the bassist Reggie Workman, you know, Archie was Archie Shep four for train. Jimmy Garrison, I heard. Alan Silva, I imagine. Alan Silva, uh, Reggie Johnson, Louis Warrell, all of those, because I was deep in the middle of the avant-garde. You were deep in the avant-garde. You were listening to all those bassists who hadn't gotten the invitations that yeah. we talked about. So the thing is that I listened to Cecil Taylor, Dave Burrell, Burton Green, even before I heard Monk. So I was all in that. Now, later on, you know, through listening to the radio and listening, I heard Mingus. And I even, like, like I mentioned in, in the book, I met Mingus twice. And I guess I saw the movie with Mingus where he's being evicted. The 1968 film where he's thrown out of his apartment. Which is right around the corner on Fifth Street. A guy named Ernie who lived next door to him gave me Mingus's bow, which I had for a long time. It was a French bow and it had been cracked so many times and glued together. I played it till it broke again. Then I threw it out because it didn't have any, you know, it was like, what am I going to say? Like, oh, I have Mingus's bow. It was, you know, it was just a bow. But then, you know, I... Um, respected Mingus and began to slowly get, see his vision and, and, and see what he was doing. So if I had heard Mingus first, it would have been locked more inside me. But what I heard first was uh, the, you know, the other bases, which one calls avant-garde. Yeah, but he, but it's, it's definitely part of the family. I mean, that's the thing about the richness of this family. You had a bassist in Chicago by the name of Charles Clark who died when he was 23. Played with Joseph Jarman. And yet another bass player on the West Coast, Albert Stinson, who also died at 23 with a cerebral hemorrhage. Played with Herbie Hancock, I think. He played, he played with a lot of people on the West Coast. And the thing is that, you know, there was so much to draw inspiration from. You take the nutrients of the music from the person you're listening to so that you can somehow be uplifted to walk in this world. And you say, well, do you like James Brown? Yes. Do you like uh, Maiden Voyage by Herbie Hancock? Yeah, we used to listen to that every Sunday. But we also listened to Frank Wright. We also listened to Albert Isla. You know, there were some people I got left out, but I listened to Booker Irwin. I listened to Yusef Latif. I listened to Jackie McLean. And a lot of those guys I really slept on, I must say. And I'm getting back to them now. I mean, I, I did a little thing with, with Billy Higgins and Andrew Hill when I first met those guys. But I had never heard Andrew Hill's music until later on. I thought this the other day. Why do you like a certain kind of music? It's because when you heard it, something was happening in your life. And it's amazing how pieces of music can soak up and become imprinted by those memories. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, then I started listening to movie soundtrack music, and that played a big dent into my thing, you know, just, just listening to soundtracks and looking out the window all day. So I think that we are informed, we like something that informs us or gives us strength when we need it. And kind of gets us to where we need to go. Yeah.
I want to flash back to your childhood. You grew up in the Melrose Housing Project in the South Bronx. You were the youngest of two sons. Your father repaired furniture. Your mother was a school aide. I gather it was your dad's dream that you would one day join the Ellington Orchestra. Yeah. Yeah. Duke Ellington was my father's idol. Like I've always said, he had two idols and two people he talked about. One was Geronimo, the Apache chief, and one was Duke Ellington. And he would play us Ellington every single day when he got home from work. He would base our clothing off of what Ellington was wearing. When Ellington came out with Ella at Duke's place and Ellington was wearing this sharkskin suit, he got us sharkskin suits. We weren't rich or anything, but somehow he was able to manage things with what he thought was important. He got me a trumpet and he got my brother a saxophone. And it wasn't until way after he died that it came to me that it made sense that what he was doing was grooming us to play in Ellington's orchestra. And I said, wow, I wish I had known. He had high hopes for you. And that's when I made that record called The Essence of Ellington, where, where we play Duke Ellington's music. And that's, and that's why that happened. And then people wanted me to continue to do that. You know, I said, well, you can continue to do Essence of Ellington. And I said, no, no, it's done. We, we did it. And uh, I don't know if I want to do it again. But it was the, the right time in space to do that particular project. We did the Curtis Mayfield project. And I wasn't going to ever do that again until like last March. They said, well, let's do a, a benefit for Arts for Art with Sun Ra and we'll put the Curtis Mayfield project. So I did some new arrangements. We added more singers. We added a larger horn section. And I guess I could continue to do that, but I don't know if I'll, I'll ever do it again. But uh, I really enjoyed it. And it always kind of comes out different and explores a different palette of sound, but it's still us. You know, it's still the music of what I call creative music version of these things. Mm. We had 900 people at that concert. Who were your neighbors in the Bronx when you were growing up? What kind of a commute? Like, what was the, I'm just, I, I wonder if you could just paint a picture of what it was like growing up in the South Bronx uh, in the 50s and early 60s. Well, I lived in apartment, apartment 4F in Claremont houses, and they had apartments with nine rooms in them for families that were really big. And they had some families that had 11 kids, 10 kids. What we did was basically you lived your life in your apartment based off of whatever your family did, your reactions with your brothers and sisters. There was a lot of basketball courts, so you're always out on the basketball court playing basketball. You were told, you know, you're in the Clamart Projects, don't cross over, don't go downtown where the 
Patterson projects were because it could be some conflict. Uh, they built the Webster houses, which were down on Webster Avenue. They had balconies. We heard, oh, they're going to have balconies in the Webster projects. But what they had was they had a balcony for the whole floor. So they had 11, 11 apartments or 10 apartments sharing this big balcony, which is like a, an outdoor thing with a big, it was like a cage. So they, so that wasn't appealing, but basically you were in your world. I was in my world, you know, listening to music, uh, going down from my house to the record store, to Stan's record store, seeing what was new. So you would go in there, it was like $2.49, $3 for LP. And uh, you save a little money and then buy Sonny Rollins' East Broadway Rundown and then spend like the whole month listening to it. I stumbled upon something that you said that I thought was very suggestive and I wanted to ask you about it. You write somewhere that living in the projects was not really conducive to a poetic life, but at the same time, it was really a postcard for poetics. What did you mean by that? Well... People used to drink a lot of what they call Swiss Up or Thunderbird wine. And so if you follow that path, you're developing a no regard for the system. You have a rebellious side. You can get into stealing things. You're getting into fights. There was the swimming pool, if you swam, was way away at Katrona Park, not that far away. But there was no real culture there to uh, things to attract people except basketball and the street. But at the same time, the people were beautiful. You see, if you sat back and you looked at all these people going to Bathgate Avenue to shop or buying stuff on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or kids walking to school and walking back, it was poetics there. And it was very inspirational to me to, to see, you know, just I used to like to stop at, this, at PS 132 and just listen to the sounds. And then on Saturday morning, they had the drum and bugle corps, which, which you hear every, you, that would wake you up on Saturday morning and they'd just be marching and playing drums. And it was funny, I had no urge to play in the drum and bugle corps, but I like listening to them. And so it was, um, well, you know, Monk has this composition called Ugly Beauty. So maybe it's on the lines of that, but in the long run, I would have to say beauty, beauty. Right. Because there are people involved. So how can you say, you know, the, the, the trap was ugly, the people were beautiful. It reminds me a little bit of that Sly, Sly and the Family Stone song, Everyday People, what you're saying. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they, 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 they didn't own diamond mines. They didn't, you know, they, they were trying to survive. You know, e eating Ronald Reagan cheese or those big cans of peanut butter they give you at the church. And trying and trying to make it, but nobody told you you could fly. Now, in in those years, you were you were flying partly by listening to all this new music: Sonny Rollins, Ornette, John Coltrane. The other day, we recorded an episode of of this series with Marilyn Crispell, and and Marilyn was talking about this experience that she had, almost of divine revelation, when she first heard of Love Supreme in the in the mid seventies, which totally led her to to work in in improvised music. I get the sense that a Love Supreme in particular had that kind of an impact on you too. Exactly, exactly the same. And once you have that, once you have that impacted on you and you get that what we call cosmic fever for the cosmic music, that's, your life is taken. Somebody can put gold and diamonds in front of you 
and all the wine and champagne and drugs and all this stuff in front of you. And on the left side and on the right side is cosmic music. You're going to go with the music because it really, really, really impacts you. It impacts you for a lifetime. It doesn't like say, well, it, I was with it for a few years, then I left. But it really impacts you so that it really keeps you sustained when you have a purpose of living and playing. Was it partly Coltrane's own story that captivated you, or was it simply just the incredible power of the music? I mean, did you know about Train's story of having overcome heroin addiction and become religious? No, it wasn't that. What it was was the fact that I knew why the music existed. Mm. You know, and that's what got me is that now, okay, now I can put all this together. Music existed to uplift people, and that's a great power. So it's, it's, it's like starting a church. You know, you're going to become a preacher with sound, and that's what you're going to do. You're going to uplift people. You're going to have these congregational meetings that are, that are called concerts, and people are going to come, and you're going to play, and you're going to hopefully uplift them. And uh, so it wasn't about... It wasn't about any biographical story. It was the power. No, it was the, it no, was the, no. the gospelized quality of the, me- yeah. the power of the music. I mean, the music itself was, was, you could really hear the power. I mean, I heard God in the music. It's interesting. Marilyn Crispell says that there was a presence in the room. That was her, pres- there was a presence in the room. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Marilyn got, she got, she, yeah, she, she's touched and uh, you can tell. And once you get touched like that, it's that you you become a member of the of the what what Kid Jordan would say the church. <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about another figure who once described himself as Coltrane as the Holy Ghost. You know, Coltrane was the the Lord, the Father, the, father, the, the yeah. Son was Pharaoh Sanders, and the Holy Ghost was was Albert Eiler, who who you know famously remarked that music is the healing force of the universe. And when you were a teenager. You read a review in Downbeat yeah. that described Eiler's band as sounding like the Salvation Army on LSD. Uh, clear, clearly, that description intrigued yeah, you. Yeah, that's true. Run right out and get that record. What kind of sound is that? Because those Salvation Army bands, that, you know, they'd be playing in the key of, of out-of-space keys anyway. And you can put them on some LSD. Oh, man, it's got to be some hip music. So you were going to run out and get that right away. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I was a really inviting review. I love that review. You grew up in this period of incredible artistic ferment in jazz or uh, black creative music, improvised music. I mean, none of, the, none of the words really, I think, do justice to the kind of work that we're talking about. But this was a period of, of just remarkable inventiveness and exploration, figures like Train and Cecil Taylor and Albert Eiler, and, and then, of course, the Association of Advancement of Creative Musicians the in Chicago, the St. Louis Black Artist Group, and the loft scene shortly after in, in New York. I mean, we, we could go on and on. But, you know, this was also very much connected to movements for social change in this country, civil rights, Black power, you know, feminism, gay rights, and, of course, the anti-Vietnam War movement. Did you feel in those years when you were a teenager playing the bass, listening to free jazz, did you sense that there were strong connections between these artistic movements and the kind of social, cultural, political revolutions that were taking place in the streets? Well, there was definitely a connection because 
if you if you're a plantation worker working on the plantation, you want to hear a song like "We Shall Overcome." Freedom's on the way because you're chained. You need something that's going to tell you that freedom's on the way. You need something to support your cause. Uh, you don't need a you know a song about diamonds or a girl's best friend. You need some songs that's going to uplift you. So I think all of this music, the whole movement, uh, was about that. I think uh, I think the black community, for the most part, you could say, was a little sleepy as far as hanging on to the music for the for the full bow round. And and I you know we had the East in Brooklyn, and then there was stuff happening in Chicago, but in the long run capitalism came in and, and got the black community that uh you know this music doesn't make any money you got to make some money we should have started record companies the musicians tried but the musicians didn't have they needed some backing you know they needed some economic power so yeah so it's definitely a connection between civil rights movement and the uh, power of that music definitely it was a soundtrack You've said somewhere that your your parents used to buy copies of Muhammad Speaks, the Nation of Islam paper, but that you didn't really personally connect with the, you know, the ideology that, you know, the white man is the devil and so on. For you, the, the devil was the oppression of black people, not uh, whites themselves. Were you drawn into other kinds of political groupings at the time, political organizations in those days? Well, it's a tricky subject. You know, I was used to go to the Black Panther office on uh, Boston Road up the hill there, and I was trying to tell them about. I was throughout the years, I did many benefits for the Black Panthers with you know, Rafi Malik, Jimmy Lyons, other groups. But uh, that was the most I got involved because they weren't a lot of on that on that level. They were basically on Monday. You're a street guy, and on Tuesday you're a Black Panther. Their level of really evolution to politics and history evolved. So a lot of people weren't really hip to a lot of things. So I, I was aware of them. I was aware of the the Black Muslims, and uh, you read the newspaper. And but again, there was a disconnect there because you know, come to the mosque and and join. So I wasn't really attracted to joining any particular kind of organization. I was attracted to music. I thought right. music was a better was a better vehicle for everything. And you know, whatever I lapped into the music, I was for. But I wasn't really attached to any particular organization. Right, but you did draw, it sounds like you did draw some inspiration from a poet you later collaborated with, Amiri Baraka, who had just changed his name from Leroy Jones and who had been making music, making art with the, the New York Art Quartet, Blacked Out of Nihilismus, for example. Um, and also, I mean, another figure I think who might have been important then to you both politically and culturally was Archie Shepp, because he was also fusing music and and poetry and pieces like Malcolm Semper Malcolm. Um, yeah, well, Archie Shepp, it had a period where everything, every other piece he did was was about the black man's struggle and black nationalism. And he was a brilliant and still is a, was a brilliant thinker, writer. His music was always pushing this message of, you know, cry of freedom, Attica blues, you can go on and on and on. 
with what he was doing. I thought it was very important. And then Baraka was uh, was also talking about poems to picket lines. And if you're going to write a poem, you want to write a revolutionary poem. And again, reiterating the idea of the purpose of art, the purpose of black art in particular, and why, what's the role of it and how it should be enabled and taken in by people. So, so I, I worked with him. I mean, I worked with a bunch of poets. I mean, I used to work with I, so you used to work with Allen Ginsberg, used to work with Baraka. Steve Delachinsky, the late Steve Delachinsky, who was a, a mutual friend. Yeah, I worked with Steve every now and then. And, um, you know, Sonia Sanchez, Jane Cortez, a whole bunch of people. And some of them were political and some of them weren't. But for me, uh, Baraka was political, plus he was also very musical. He was a brilliant reader of his own poetry. I mean, really, yeah. you know. He could deliver the goods. Ask us why we here playing ourselves. Ask us why we here playing ourselves. Like we can't understand. Like we can't understand. Who is our father? Who is our mother? Who is the blind man that killed him? You see yourself, you would dig yourself. And then be yourself. Obviously, there's a very strong connection to black music, the black vernacular tradition in all of the work that you do. And yet at the same time, what I find interesting about your work is that you've you've never confined yourself to one area or of creativity, one group. I mean, you developed a strong interest in the poetry of the Nicaraguan revolutionary Ernesto Cardinal and in the radical theater of Jerzy Grotowski. You've also been fascinated by the cinema of the new wave and neorealism in Italy and Stan Brakhage in New York. I mean, it, it, my sense is that, is that your, your imagination has always been a very expansive one and that sort of limiting conceptions of, you know, Blackness or what a Black artist could do, you've always recoiled from that well you can't you or you have to follow your dream you have to follow the impulses that are coming through you you have to play what you hear say what you feel and develop what you wish to develop if you're interested in playing a particular kind of music then you should be able to do it whether you're going against the grain or with the grain if you like this particular kind of music you should play it you only have one life to live and uh, I think it's very important to be a multi-dimensional person if you have that sway. You know, if you're interested in film and poetry and music and dance, if you're interested in planting things, if you're interested in all of these things, then so, and you see, and I think part of being interested in them, you see the connection, that they're all connected in some kind of way, that, that they're not separate. Well. I like music, but I don't like dance. So some musicians used to say, well, I don't like singers. I don't like guitar players. Okay, well, okay, you don't like singers, but I could never see how you could, you know, it's like saying, I, li I like the people who live on 6th Street between Avenue A and B, but the people who live between C and D, I don't like them. You know, we gotta remember that they're all people. 
know, if, 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 you're, if you're a doctor, everyone that comes in the office, you can't say, well, I, I can't serve you because I don't like you because you live on this neighborhood or because you have this color skin. I mean, that, that's like racism. I don't know what the equivalent to cultural racism is, but that's what, that's what it is. If you like it, you have the right to listen to it, enjoy it, and play it. I think you know one really uh, wonderful example of your expansive sensibility is uh, is a disc on migration of silence into and out of the tone world. Uh, a disc that is a tribute to Italian filmmakers you love. It's called the Italian Director's Suite, and it's dedicated to figures like Rossellini, Visconti, Fellini, Pasolini. And you remark that, you know, that you loved Pasolini's film about Jesus, the gospel according to St. Matthew, a film that he made in, in the early 1960s, because it was closer to the earth and grittier than Hollywood films. And this idea of it being closer to the earth brings us back to the idea of farming and, and nature and, and cultivating and also a kind of aesthetic earthiness. And, you know, the music in that film is Blind Willie Johnson's Dark Was the Night, Cold is the Ground. Yes. Yeah. used a brilliant effect. Let's listen to the, the uh, Pasolini movement of the Italian director's suite. So why Pasolini? Well, I was, I mean, I think I was introduced to him through that film. And then later on, checked out some of his other movies as one that Ted Kirsten is playing the trumpet in. And then I heard he was, you know, he was, he was murdered on a beach. And so I really felt for him because, I mean, he was a journalist. Poet, a poet. Yeah. And he was, you know, he, he was gay, and, but he had the strength to lift himself up and do things and to make films when he can't, when he could, and to stand up and protest things when he could. And uh, he was just inspired me at that time. He's very inspiring. I mean, all of these directors that I mentioned, you know, when I saw Open City, which is uh, Rossellini, right? Open City is Rossellini, yes. And, and my mom took me to see that film. At the, at the museum. And why she went, I never went anywhere. <laughs> and she just said, we're just going to go to the museum. I said, okay. So we went to the museum and they were showing that film. And I said, this, this movie, this is, this is like out of sight. I said, wow. this is So I got an interest in that, watching Million Dollar Movie on Channel 9, La Strada. Like, they would show La Strada every night at 7.30 and then again at 10.30 for six nights, 
five nights, and then on Saturday they would show it all day long. It's called a Million Dollar Movie. Because since I didn't want to be in the street, I didn't want to, so I stayed at home and and watched movies. You know, that's how I got hip to to uh, Jean Luc Godard Alphaville. They showed that one. And you made and you made a whole work around Alphaville. I mean, of course, if these Italian neorealist directors had been working in the States rather than Italy after the war, they would have been making, they would have been shooting films in the South Bronx. That was the whole aesthetic of neorealism. So I, I was, it, to me, it was just like they were guys coming out of the projects. So it was, it was again, that was sort of an echo and a thank you for the inspiration. So if you inspire me, you might get a suite or a song named after you. Because there are a lot of songs in there for a lot of people. You know, the jazz scene has seen its share of sexism, misogyny. It's it's often been a, a man's world where women have not been so welcome. And so it's to me, it's even more striking that throughout your career, especially as a, as a leader, you've so often had women in your bands, uh, not just as singers either. But one singer you you have worked with, with whom I'm also friendly, Lisa Sokolov, said to me that if it weren't for William, a lot of us would be in really poor shape. And she also said that um, that this new box set represents your sound community. I mean, you are considered something of uh, of a leader, someone who holds this scene together. What kind of compels you to perform that role? It seems to come naturally to you. It's not like seeing flowers in a closet and say, okay, we got to go in this closet and take these flowers out. And, and, and because people need to hear that music, they need to hear, they need to see, they need to feel all of these people who've worked their entire life and they have a beautiful things to offer. So uh, if I can help facilitate that or say, okay, or write music for these 10 people or these four people or that person or that person, then um, let's do it. When we, we went over to Warclaw, Poland, and we did the thing with the symphony orchestra, and then we brought Charles Gale as soloist. I mean, it was like, I thought it was the right thing to do. Because I thought not only could he do the job, but they were asking him, well, do you have perfect pitch? How do you do that? How do you come in on the right note all the time? How do you do this? You know, the people in the orchestra, they were like very uh, mesmerized by Charles and and actually the whole band, uh, Mike Mike Reed was playing with us. So it's, it's being attuned to your community. And if you have the power or the energy to, to so, sort of help facilitate people and activate people and get them moving, I think it's great because you get them moving, they get you moving. It's definitely an exchange program. It's not just a one-way one street. All right, I'll be back in two minutes. You want to place a, place a, a bet with your bookie while we're doing this? Anybody? <laughs> you see, I'm going to tell you all something. You see, you can't do an interview with someone that's got like 10 kids in the house. <laughs> Forget about it. Uh, are you ready, Patricia? I'll be out in a second. In a second. You might as well wait for your board. Oh, no, no. I'm not, I have the tea afterwards. Oh, it's okay. I had a sip of orange juice. I'm okay. Okay.
You've been listening to part one of William Parker on Myself with Others, a podcast by Adam Schatz. Myself with Others is produced by Richard Sears. Thank you to Stephen Jorg and Alm Fidelity. The theme for Myself with Others is composed and performed by Richard Sears. All other musical selections are performed by William Parker and referenced in the episode notes. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe. Thank you.